Welcome to Wellversed, where we bring biblical principles of governance to governmental leaders and you. This is the Wellversed podcast. I'm extremely excited about our guest tonight. We have several guests. We'll be starting in a moment with Dinesh D'Souza from the incredible movie, 2000 Mules. If you haven't seen it, you are going to want to see it, but we're going to hear from him in just a moment. But to set the stage, I go to my special friend, my buddy, Frank Kaser. He's a retired physicist, but he's brilliant when it comes to biblical application in terms of government principles. So we're going to go to Frank Kaser. Frank, I'm going to throw you this question. Why should we as Christians care about honest elections? What's the biblical foundation for that? Talk to us for a few minutes, Frank. Okay, well, here it goes. Uh, first of all, I'll say what I'm not going to talk about. I'm not going to talk about qualifications for candidates or biblical positions on policy issues of the day. There's all kinds of material out there for that, and that's beyond the scope of what we're talking about here. What I'm going to be talking about is what is election integrity and what are some principles from the Bible that I think apply to that. And, and fundamentally, I'll, let me define what I mean when I talk about election integrity. I got a little definition here. It says, it's confidence that election results accurately reflect informed voting decisions of legitimate voters. That's, that's it in a nutshell. And so to begin any transaction, I think everybody would agree this, biblically, any transaction has to be honesty and trustworthiness in it. It can be a business transaction. It can be a relationship, whatever else, honesty and trustworthiness is throughout scripture. That's a, a biblical value we should always look for in our dealings, but also we should expect that in others. So that I'm not even going to address. That's, that's a going in assumption that that should be the overall value character that we're looking for. But to get more specifically, I'll start out with this. One person, one vote. That sounds kind of, well, gee, we already know that. Well, do we or don't we? Genesis 1.27 basically says everybody's made in God's image. I would maintain that sets the principle that everybody has equal value and equal worth before God. It doesn't make any difference what their social status is, how much their money they have, what their race is, what their ethnicity, or what their faith is. They have that equal standing. And so that individual has that authority themselves to make their decisions. That's really critical. So basically, bottom line is when votes are duplicated or they're falsified or they're ignored, it violates the fundamental principle of valuing that one vote. Okay, age. How about age? Well, we've made, a, we've made a conscious decision in this country to make the voting age 18. Biblically, however, <laughs> I believe that it basically says that adulthood, when a person is looked to, to take on duties and responsibilities associated with adulthood, it's about 20. Uh, in numbers, it talks about that's when a person serves in the military is when they reach 20 years old. When they're counted in the census for the nation, they're 20 years old. Uh, when they're able to offer uh, sacrifices to the temple to atone for their own sins, it was when they reached 20 years old. So that would seem to be a threshold biblically of when adulthood is assumed in a, in, for a person. So that tells me, okay, we've made a decision for it to be 18, but we sure don't want to lower it. To 17 or 16. And there's some proposals out there to do that. Well, I would maintain that disrupts election integrity because it's providing an opportunity for those who are not 
mature enough, if you will, typically, in order to weigh in on important decisions. What about soundness of mind? This is something that doesn't come up too often, but Matthew 5, 37, oops, for some reason I went off here. Well, my screen went blank, that's okay. Matthew 5, 20, 37, it says, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that comes from the evil one. For me, the implication of this is this is in the context of making an oath. And when a person takes an oath, the assumption is they're, they know what they're talking about. They've made a value judgment and they've made a decision in that. And I would say that applies to a cast in the ballot, that they can understand what they're actually doing. So to me, this invalidates anybody else that's filling out a ballot for somebody else that may be confused or invalid or cannot think clearly or whatever else. And it's stealing their vote. It's, it's basically a Proverbs 22, 22 thing. It's exploiting the, the defenseless and the weak. And scripture condemns that roundly. So a person needs to be able to have the faculties in order to vote appropriately. And taking advantage of that, I think, is, is vile. A personal identification. This is kind of an interesting one. Paul, in, in Philemon, verse 19, he says, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. What is he doing? He's, he's basically writing a verse in his own way that he writes. And that, that basically is an identifier to somebody else that they can uniquely identify his, the way his handwriting is to make sure that it's him. So requiring signature verification to determine whether it's the right person voting on, I think is a very appropriate requirement. Uh, Paul talks about that in Galatians 6 too. It's, so it's not, uh, it's not unusual for that. I and mean, I think voter ID is the same type of thing. It's a, it's ability that we have now for the government to ensure you're a citizen, but also to provide valid visual identification as well as your signature to ensure you are who you are. But voting confusion and complication. Uh, here in California, voting is an is a I would maintain is a, is a difficult and complex process because of the amount of variables that are involved, the amount of latitude that's given as far as how a person registers or when they vote, how they count the vote, where they put their ballot, mail it in, in person, in a box. It goes on and on and on. Absentee ballots. I I would offer up. 1 Corinthians 14, 33 tells me God is not a God of confusion. There is a small g God that is the God of disorder, and it's not our Heavenly Father. So when things are made complicated, when there's opportunity for confusion, there's greater opportunity for fraud. In, in essence, the longer the chain of custody for when a person votes on a ballot, to the time that it's ultimately reported, that chain of custody is extremely important. The more hands there are in the middle, the more individuals that are, that are doing something with that ballot, or the more machines it goes through, or the more the way it's tabulated, those are all opportunities for somebody to mess with the works, if you will, and disrupt the integrity of that vote and the election itself. Another principle is 2 Timothy 3, 5. Uh, Paul says, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. So understanding what the rules are of elections is extremely important. And I would maintain that anybody or anybody who tries to game the system 
and make and unjustly does that is really should be held up in contempt because they're not they're violating what has been established for the good of the process. Um, just like an athlete is disqualified if they don't toe the line, I would maintain the same thing is true in elections. If if a group or an organization or a party is is has is found or is it's uncovered that they are gaming the system inappropriately, they're not following the rules, they they really should be disqualified from the results of that particular decision or that election. Um, what about citizenship? I would maintain that Old Testament Israel is kind of interesting. What they they basically foreigners and sojourners were treated under the, the laws the same way as as native Israelites except for a couple areas. One had to do with the Passover. The Passover was national recognition. The ideals and the history and the reasons for why Israel came into existence through the, through the workings of an almighty God. The other one is Ezekiel 44. It talks about the temple cannot be defiled. Foreigners cannot go into the, the, the region of the temple because it will defile that which is... Uh, uh, the area where a holy God resides. So un unless a person was a, a male anyway, was circumcised, which is a significant commitment and identified themselves with why that nation exists and what the value systems were of that nation, they could not participate in those two areas. I would maintain elections are the same way. So that's, it's appropriate then to prevent somebody from casually being able to register. That's not a citizen or to use uh, uh, applying for a driver's license as a means to gain voter registration, that's treating trivially something that's extremely important as far as our duty and our privilege in this nation. So even in Old Testament Israel, they recognize that it has to be a commitment to the person, to the ideals of the nation that they're actually in to be able to allow them participate fully in it. And this is the final section. Finally, lack, what does the lack of integrity, election integrity imply? Well, one is any candidate or group or organization that practices that in any capacity, uh, I would maintain, cannot be trusted to govern morally. Evil begets evil. We know that in Habakkuk 1, 4. If you are vile and cannot be trusted in a component of this in order to gain power in office, why would we ever trust somebody then to wield the, the, the power of authority to make decisions over people's lives? It doesn't, it's not just constrained there. It's a basic fundamental worldview of the end justifies the means to accomplish something that was it wanted to accomplish and that is not going to be consistent with what our values are and somebody that we can put our trust in to make the best decisions for the common good, as well as the body of Christ for that matter. Uh, another thing, uh, disruptors of elections, anything that's falsified or done inappropriately or not counted or not anything that would detract from election integrity, I don't think that presents a false witness to those that are following the rules. And scripture soundly condemns anybody that gives a false witness. They cannot be trusted and they need to be removed from the system that they're being involved in, they're being part of. Um, so what about independent? One final one here is the, the need for independent scrutiny. 
Now, Proverbs 18, 17 says, one man seems right until another man questions him. That we've learned this in our own lives. It's true in elections. You have generally, if you have generally two competing factors or candidates that are trying, that are vying for the, the support of the public to vote them into office, that the integrity of that ballot, of that ballot decision is so important that both should have be able to have representation to check every step in that chain of custody to ensure that that ballot is treated appropriately and counted appropriately. And that it's valid to begin with when the person who actually checks the box really has the authority to do that. First uh, Thessalonians 5.21 is kind of consistent with that. But test everything, hold fast what is good. So testing this uh, is extremely important and we shouldn't shy away from demanding that and asking for that every step of the way. And I would maintain that's very consistent with the, the proverb of Ronald Reagan, you know, trust, but verify. And I think that, that in essence, uh, encapsulates the biblical foundation for what we, how we want to approach elections to ensure the integrity of that entire process for our good. So over to you, Jim. Frank, thank you so much. For those of you just listening, what you've been hearing is a biblical foundation for honesty in government. Everyone seems to know the Bible speaks to the personal issues, family issues, and church issues of life. Few seem to understand the Bible speaks specifically to the governmental arenas of life. God invented government. Uh, it's God who establishes nations. So we look to the scripture for everything. And uh, those who would try to say, if you question the election, you're some kind of a domestic terrorist, are violating our number one religious value, our number one First Amendment, our right to worship as we want. That means following scripture in totality. And what you've just heard outlined is a very, a very detailed biblical step-by-step uh, -step in terms of why election honesty really matters. This is a moral, ethical, it's not political. This is a moral, ethical, a scriptural, theological, biblical issue that we're covering tonight. And Frank, I'm going to ask you if we can send that out a newsletter, what you discovered, send that out to everybody in, in, uh, in the next week or so. Uh, we're so honored to have our, thank you, Frank. We're now, so honored to have our next guest, Dinesh D'Souza. Uh, we're going to watch a trailer of a movie. I'm not going to take any time away from him by introducing him because he's known nationally. His impact on our nation is very significant as an author, speaker, producer of movies, an impactor of culture par excellence. His movie, 2000 Mules, is what I've asked him to come talk about tonight because this is, I want to repeat, for those who don't grasp this, this is not fundamentally political. This is theological, moral, ethical, scriptural, biblical. Do I sound like I'm beating a drum tonight? There's a reason why I'm doing that. So that everyone understands exactly what we're trying to accomplish in, in tonight's session. So Dinesh D'Souza, what I'm going to do is play the trailer, if that's okay first. And then when we come to you, we're, we're so honored to have you. I'm going to turn you loose. If you just don't want, just mind, take the first minute or two, talk about yourself uh, biographically, give a little overview of who you are, your own life story briefly, and then tell us the incredible story behind 2,000 Mules. With that, Alan, let's roll the video right now, the trailer for 2,000 Mules. We have put together, I think, the most extensive and inclusive voter fraud organization in the history of American politics.
Let me say it again. The 2020 election was the most secure election in American history. Let me begin by asking a very simple question. Do we know the truth about what really happened in the 2020 election? I think millions of Americans know something went wrong, and they have little pieces, and no one's really put it together. I'm agnostic on this question, and I, I am awaiting more information. If I believed the president were a Nazi, I might steal an election. Bold accusations require bold evidence, and they haven't seen it. We have been working on something big. Show me the money. Can we meet? I've been working with Greg Phillips. He has a deep background in election intelligence. True the Vote has the largest store of election intelligence for the 2020 elections in the world. No one has more data than we do. We identified in Atlanta 242 mules that went to an average of 24 drop boxes. But Philadelphia alone, we've identified more than 1,100 mules. What is a mule? Person picking up ballots and running them to the drop boxes. This is not grandma out walking her dog. Bad backgrounds, bad reputations. They are interested in one thing, that's money. And in no shape, in no way, in no time is that legal. This is organized crime. Do you have video evidence? Four million minutes of surveillance video around the country. What you're about to see is disturbing. So this is uh, one o'clock in the morning. Don't we all vote at one o'clock in the morning? <laughs> On one night, this person, this mule, went across six counties to 27 different drop boxes. I call it the Mexican mafia, seriously, because uh, they, they work like that. This is jaw-dropping. What you showed is frightening. It's just sickening to me. Now we come to the most important question of all. Was the magnitude of vote trafficking enough to tip the balance in the 2020 presidential election? It's not a leap to say this would have made a difference. They have ruined Election Day in the United States of America. That's provable. And that's enough for me to fight the left with every fiber in my body. Without free and fair elections, we are not a democracy. We are a criminal cartel masquerading as a democracy. 2,000 mules in select theaters, May 2nd and 4th. Virtual premiere, May 7th. Stream May 8th at Salem Now or Locals. The next one, I... Before I saw that, I thought it was going to be a movie about the standard discussions we'd already heard at infinitum about the election. When I saw your movie, I was jolted. That was brand new information I'd never heard of. With those words, Dinesh, welcome. We turn it to you. Thank you very much. I, uh, <coughs> I appreciate it. I'll start by saying a couple of words about myself. I'm an immigrant to the United States from uh, India. I was born in Mumbai. I came to this country at the age of 17 as an exchange student. Um, I got a scholarship to go to Dartmouth, so I uh, ended up continuing my education. Uh, I became a U.S. citizen in 1991. As a young man in my 20s, I got a chance to work in the Reagan White House for a couple of years. This was in 87, 88. I've been for most of my career in so-called think tanks. These are sort of research foundations the American Enterprise Institute and a group called the Hoover Institution, which is part of Stanford University. Uh, 10 years ago, I started making documentary films. And uh, my first one was called 2016 Obama's America. 
um, I've made six of them. And the new one, 2000 Mules, is, is different than anything I've really done before. In fact, it deals with a topic that is absolutely fundamental, which is, um, are we really a constitutional democracy? Now, <clears throat> countries around the world, you'll find, often use the name democracy. Um, there are autocratic countries over the past 50 years that routinely call themselves either democratic or Republican. Uh, under the Soviet Union, I remember the, the um, East Germany, which was part of the Soviet orbit, a communist East Germany, called itself the GDR, the German Democratic Republic. Uh, and that's because democracy carries a certain kind of moral legitimacy. And they wanted that, even though they weren't, in fact, a democracy. <clears throat> and then now you, you'll have the, um, in Iran, the Islamic Republic of Iran. Well, it's not really a republic. They don't have a normal democracy. Candidates are pre-selected by the government. So the point being, there are sham democracies all over the place. But I never thought the United States would fall into that category. In fact, I've had for most of my life a, a very, I'd call it civics book idea of America. Uh, and that is that I would go in to vote. I would, you know, pull the curtain. I'd cast my ballot. Never dreamed that somebody would like be rigging the result or fixing the election or not adding the numbers up correctly. In other words, I had a, a lot of trust that the institution was working well. And, uh, and then I noticed in the 2020 election, well, I mean, there's been questioning of elections. I don't think that by itself is all that surprising. Of course, I lived through the questioning of the Bush-Gore election, uh, which was very close. Um, then, of course, uh, Trump's election in 2016, huge uh, furor around that, many Democrats uh, pretty much all the things the January 6th committee is, is accusing Trump, you know, uh, calling on electors to cast a different vote than they were committed to do, sort of looking for alternate electors. So I'm thinking to myself, if Trump did that in 2020, he probably got the idea from Hillary Clinton in 2016. Uh, Democrats were calling for that. They were calling for an overturning of the result um, uh, in the interim between the election and Trump's inauguration. Well, and then I was, I lived through 2020 and I noticed it was very strange. I mean, I, I saw things on election night that I hadn't seen before. Uh, and so right in the middle of the uh, election, uh, late at night when Trump is leading, they suddenly simultaneously in a bunch of key states stop counting. And I thought to myself, well, what are the odds that people, committees in all those states independently decided within 10 minutes of each other to all do that? Somebody must have given the order, but who? Who has that kind of power? So all of these questions kind of haunted me. Uh, and yet, um, you know, right after the election, we heard sort of two narratives, neither of which made total sense to me. The first one was, this is the most secure election in history. And I thought to myself, how can you say that like three days after the election? Have you really done a comparison of the fraud in 2020 compared to <clears throat> all previous elections? Do you happen to know for a fact that it was the least this time? So no, this was just stated as a kind of proclamation coming you know, from the media and from the left. And on the right, there were many people who were trying to say this was fraudulent, but for a long time, it was they were hard pressed to give you the kind of proof that you could kind of get your hands around. Um, what you had were a lot of anomalies or puzzles. Um, how did Trump win the bellwether counties and still lose the election? 
or people would point to a case of fraud here or a case of fraud over there. But see, this is episodic fraud. It's not systematic fraud. Uh, typically, when courts uh, look at elections, uh, they use a principle that is called the but-for principle. But for this alleged fraud, would the outcome have been different? So in other words, you have to show enough fraud that it would have changed the result. Um, and so I didn't see it. And, uh, and then the weeks and the months passed and I thought, wow, you know, I think something went really wrong in the 2020 election and was probably related to COVID um, and the changing of the rules around the election. But you know what, it's becoming a cold case with every day and week, we're less likely to know what really happened. Uh, and then um, I um, uh, met, my, uh, uh, my wife has known this group called True the Vote which is a kind of election intelligence group that has been, had been very quiet when there were all these accusations of fraud flying around. And the reason they were quiet is they were investigating this a different way. And so the two principals of that group, Catherine Engelbrecht and Greg Phillips, came to our house in Texas. And we spent a day and they showed us some evidence um, that they had accumulated. And as I was looking at it, I realized, wow, I am seeing evidence of a caliber I haven't seen before. <clears throat> this is almost like a detective's coming to a cold case later uh, and figuring out DNA that enables you to nab the guy who did it. Now, that doesn't mean you can lock the guy up. It may be the statute of limitations is passed. It may be that the window is closed, but that's a separate issue. That's a legal issue. Leaving that aside, you still want to know who did it. And if you can definitively prove that, that's very valuable and important information. Now, <clears throat> the DNA that we're talking about is not human DNA. It's not human fingerprints. It's, let's call it digital DNA. It's, the, uh, it's cell phone geo-tracking. It is the ability of our cell phones to pinpoint our location within a few feet. Now, <clears throat> this technology is, is a relatively new technology, but it's gotten a lot better. Uh, in the same way that GPS has gotten better over the years. And it's used in many different areas. It's used by the Defense Department. It's used by law enforcement every single day. It was used by the FBI to identify the January 6th protesters, <laughs> whether inside or outside the door of the Capitol. Uh, it's used by the CDC to verify if people are social distancing. So this is a reliable and mature technology. And the ingenuity of True the Vote was to take this existing technology and apply it in the exact same way to ballot trafficking, to finding mules. Now, what's a mule? Well, the mule is what's a term lifted, of course, from like drug trafficking or even human trafficking. A mule is a sort of delivery man. Uh, a mule is a paid operative who is taking, who is delivering fraudulent and illegal votes to a ballot mail-in drop box. That's a mule. Now, the question becomes, how later, meaning months after the 2020 election, can one go back and identify these mules? Well, it turns out that the reason you can do that is because of the movement of their phones. Um, now, when inside of our cell phones are apps, uh, hundreds of them, and when we click on these apps and download them, we unwittingly perhaps give permission for our data to be ransacked and sold. And there are these aggregators, about 40 of them in the country, 
that sell this data. This is why, you know, you get notifications on your phone. You're taking a walk and there's a store across the street and there's a special going on and they know where you are. They know you're right there. Or you even you go take a vacation, you go to Tampa, you get off the plane, bing on your phone, 75 degrees in Tampa. How'd they know you're there? They're geo-tracking your phone. Well, so True the Vote had kind of a very simple, but a, uh, kind of a genius idea. Let's buy all the cell phone traffic in the five key areas that decided the 2020 election. Let's buy Atlanta, Georgia. Let's buy Phoenix, Arizona, Detroit, Milwaukee, and the greater Philadelphia area. These are really, frankly, heavily democratic areas. Uh, they're not buying the whole state. They're just buying certain parts of the state. Uh, and they bought all the cell phone data from October 1, which is early voting, through Election Day. And in Georgia, they also bought it for the Senate runoffs, which is early January. Now, this is 10 trillion pings, a giant trove of, of cell phone data. And then what you have to do, and you need specialists to do this, is you run a search algorithm. And the search is this. Let's look for devices, cell phone IDs. Inside our cell phone is a unique ID. It's not the cell phone number. It's a unique ID, which identifies your cell phone uh, like a fingerprint. Now, obviously, Jim Garlow can give his phone to his wife, and then his wife is at the Dropbox. But that Jim's phone is at that Dropbox is not open to doubt. <clears throat> so... True the Vote is looking for cell phone IDs that in a short period of time, about two weeks, are going to 10 or more ballot drop boxes. Now, important thing to remember here is the ballot drop box is only for ballots. It's not like the post box. There's no reason to go to a ballot drop box unless you're dumping ballots in it. If you go to the post office, you can say, well, I went on Monday to pay my mortgage. I went on Tuesday to pay my utility bill. So I have a reason to go to multiple drop boxes, but not to a ballot drop box. So if anyone goes to 10 or more drop boxes, there is no innocent explanation for that behavior. And what True the Vote did was when they ran the search algorithm, they found that in these five areas that I mentioned, there were some 2,000 plus mules delivering these illegal votes <clears throat> into the ballot drop boxes, making multiple stops, sometimes multiple stops in one night, sometimes doing whole mailman type routes and going through multiple counties in one night. And how do you know that? By the movement of their phone. Now, as I watched this evidence being presented at my house, I thought this is fascinating and people can understand it because people have an experience of the reliability of our phones, right? You get off an airport, you call an Uber, your phone is gonna tell you. You're at gate 17, door H. Uh, your phone knows that, it can pinpoint you and, it's, and that's the technology we're talking about. Once you look at this technology and buy this data, you can distinguish between someone, say going past a Dropbox and going to a Dropbox. It's like watching a moving dot. The dot keeps moving in a steady pace goes right by the Dropbox, keeps going, or the dot stops at the Dropbox, then returns typically to a car and goes on to the next Dropbox. So some of the objections to 2000 Mules, you know, even Bill Barr, the attorney general uh, says, well, you know, in a big city like Atlanta, you've got people milling around, driving, Uber, jogging, walking. They're going to go by these Dropboxes. So just by the statistical lottery, you're going to get lots of people near these Dropboxes. 
But that's nonsense because that's like saying on January 6th in Washington, D.C., there are tens of thousands of people. They're driving, they're Ubering, they're jogging, they're walking. So you can't identify people who are 10 feet outside or 10 feet inside the Capitol. But that's exactly what the FBI is doing. That's what's in their charging documents. So the technology, in other words, can tell the difference. This is the point. Um, and I thought, wow, this is going to be really interesting. But I wasn't convinced it would work as a movie. Because in a movie, when you, when you talk about a crime, it's kind of like you, even if you're watching a fictional film, you really have to see the crime. And, and it was only when I asked through the vote, do you have any other kind of evidence beside the geo-tracking, perhaps something else that would corroborate or confirm it? They're like, well, we have video. And I'm like, well, do you have video from all the five states? They go, unfortunately, no, because a lot of the states didn't take any video. But from the states we do have video, they said, We've got quite a lot, 4 million minutes of it. Uh, and they said the beauty of the video is that it confirms the geo-tracking. The two kind of go together. In fact, if you give me video of, let's say, a Dropbox uh, for, say, seven nights, uh, I'd have to watch you know, thousands and thousands of minutes of video, and nothing's happening on the video. I wouldn't know where to look on the video. The beauty of the geo-tracking is I look at the geo-tracking, and it tells me that there's a mule, there's a cell phone device, going from Dropbox to Dropbox to Dropbox, let's say from Dropbox one to two to three to four to five, and perhaps only one of those Dropboxes has a video, Dropbox number four. But your cell phone tells you that you got to that Dropbox at let's say 2 a.m. in the morning. By the way, a lot of the mules are working at night because they don't wanna be seen. So you arrive at Dropbox number four at 2 a.m. in the morning. Now you go to the video and you know where to look. You go right to 2 a.m. in the morning on the timestamp of the video, and what do you see? a mule. And what's he doing? He's looking to the left and right to make sure nobody sees him. He approaches the drop box. He's wearing latex gloves. Uh, he uh, begins to uh, take off his backpack, take out a bunch of ballots, stuff them in the box one after the other, takes photos of the ballots going in so he can show people that he was there. He did the job. He needs to get paid. And then as soon as he's done, he removes the gloves, tosses them into a trash can, hightails it back to his car and takes off. And that's this video upon video upon video that shows that. So, so these are the two converging lines of evidence. Um, this is what you're going to see in the movie. So if you want to watch the film, the way to do that is to go to 2000mules.com, uh, just the number 2000mules.com. You can digitally download it. You can rent it. You can stream it. You can buy DVDs. <clears throat> this is a way to help get the message out, even if you've seen the movie. By the way, this has been a strange movie for me because I released it in an age of censorship. I realized I can't put the movie, the, all my other movies go on Amazon Prime, they go Apple iTunes, um, you know, I put the trailer on YouTube, I advertise on Facebook, and I realized I can do none of that. If I advertise on Facebook, they're going to take down my Facebook account. If I put the trailer on YouTube, at the least I'll pull the trailer down, they'll probably ban me on YouTube. Um, if I put it on Amazon Prime, they could take it down the week the movie's released. So I had to um, put this movie only on uncancelable platforms. And it's a really a reflection of the peculiar times we live in where topics like election fraud cannot be discussed. This is the most banned subject in the country. Other topics are banned like COVID and climate change, but this one more than any other. Um, now, uh, what is a the, what needs to happen next? Well, there are a couple of things. One is it's good to have election integrity laws 
that prevents some of these outrages from happening again. Uh, we talk about uh, voter ID, people talk about signature matching, those things are very important. The other thing that's very important that's often not talked about is 24 hour surveillance on all the drop boxes. Uh, some people go, I don't like drop boxes, I just wanna go back to election day and I do too. But these laws are made at the state level. Some states are going to have drop boxes. And my point is, if you're going to have drop boxes, they need to have surveillance. We live at a time when, you know, every Home Depot, every ATM, every mall, every parking lot, there's no reason not to have eyes on these drop boxes. The other thing is, um, this is a scheme that can easily be busted. Um, now, I can't bust it because I don't have prosecutorial power. I can't raid these nonprofits where the mules get their ballots. The mules, by the way, don't come up with their own ballots. They stop at these sort of left-wing activist centers and are given the ballots. Their job is merely to be the courier, the delivery man or delivery woman. Um, that's what the mules do. And, um, uh, and so there would be normally two ways to bust this. One way is impossible and the other way is very doable. The impossible way is to go back and look at the ballots. And the reason you can't do that is when an absentee or mail-in ballot comes in, there's an envelope and the ballot is inside the envelope. The name and the address and signature only appear on the envelope. Once the ballot is taken out from the envelope, those two pieces of evidence are permanently separated. The ballot is then put in with all the other ballots and it sort of can't be fished back out. So you can't reverse engineer this process. So it's discussed in the movie. Someone goes, let's just go get all those ballots can't get the ballots because the ballots are mixed in with all the others, the bad ballots and the good ballots together. So you cannot bust the fraud that way. But there's another way to do it, which law enforcement is very familiar with. It's essentially similar to, you know, you have a mafia guy who commits a crime and you can, can't find the body. So you can't, you can't solve the crime that way. But what you can do is you can go find the low level guys who were involved in the operation and make them rat out the high level guys who then rat out the higher level guys and eventually you get Don Corleone himself. Same here. You have to go to the mules. Who paid you? Who put you up to this? Um, uh, who organized this operation? Where did you get the ballots? Was it from nursing homes and people who are sort of invalid and didn't even know they were voting? Are they from homeless shelters? Are they from campuses where the students have now graduated and moved away? Are they from apartment complexes where you went door to door and told people to sign here and you'll request an absentee ballot, but instead of the ballot going to them, you had the ballot going to you so you could then vote on their behalf. So all of these fraud schemes are very common. They are, we, we know that they've been going on for 20 years. There are voter fraud cases that document pretty much all of them. And I think what happened in the 2020 election is that, that mail-in ballots, which were previously a relatively small part of the overall election, now became a big part of it. And so the fraudsters ramped up their operation you know, tenfold or 20-fold. So this, in a nutshell, is a story of what went wrong. It doesn't rely on suppositions or guesswork or anomalies. It doesn't even rely on the idea of the machine swapping the votes. It's not about foreign intervention. It's old school fraud busted in a high-tech way. The high-tech is simply the use of the geo-tracking, which is a way to go back and take you to the scene of the crime, so to speak, show you the movement of the mules, and then you turn on the video and you can see them for yourself. I think that's what makes the movie so compelling is you can actually see the crimes being committed. It's kind of like, I want to see the criminals breaking into Fort Knox and there they are. 
you know, on the screen. Uh, so I can see why the left is freaked out about this. They've been unleashing so-called fact check upon fact check upon fact check, but none of the fact checks substantively do any real harm. Some of them, by the way, raise legitimate questions. Uh, and we should have a debate about them. The sad thing is that in many places, you can't even have the debate. They won't even talk about the issue at all. So I think that this is something that has, this is not really about Trump. In my movie that's 90 minutes long, Trump appears for approximately two minutes. Uh, of course, he was the candidate in 2020, but I didn't want to make the movie about Trump. Now, Trump loves the movie. He sees it as vindicating him. He's been promoting it. But I think even he knows that this is really bigger than him. It's about the fundamental integrity of our elections and about whether or not we can legitimately call ourselves a democracy. So I'll stop with that and, um, and perhaps take a question or two before I sign off. The phrase ballot harvesting, is that what the mules are doing or is, does the term ballot harvesting refer to something different than what these mules are doing? So, there's an important distinction uh, to be made between ballot harvesting and paid ballot trafficking. So here's the difference. Ballot harvesting, by definition, is if, if you or I give our ballot to someone else and tell them to return it for us. Now, about half the states allow some form of ballot harvesting, but the vast majority of the states, of that half, uh, restricted to very careful circumstances. So in, in Georgia and Arizona, you can give your ballot to an immediate family member. Um, or if you are in a confined facility, like a nursing home, <coughs> you can give it to a caregiver. That's it. You can't give it to anyone else. In Philadelphia, you must return your own ballot. You cannot give your ballot to anyone else. It's only if you are physically incapacitated and unable to deliver your ballot, you can in that case have somebody else delivered for you and they have to sign an affidavit that they will not or have not altered the ballot in any way. In Wisconsin, ballot harvesting is not permitted at all. But there are other states, so we don't cover in the movie, California allows you to give your ballot to pretty much anyone. I can go to my neighbor, hey, listen, Tom, you take my ballot, you drop it off, that's allowed. But paid ballot trafficking is allowed in no state. In California, I can't go to my neighbor and say, hey, Tom, here's $50 to return my ballot. Because the moment money changes hands, you have the issue of bribery. So no voter or vote deliverer can be paid to drop off a ballot, let alone mules that are sort of professional operatives that are doing this in a systematic way, dropping off in, in each individual case, tens or hundreds or even thousands of ballots. That is legal in no state. So the, the, the paid ballot trafficking described in the movie is illegal in all 50 states and emphatically in the five states that we cover in the film. You, you answered, <clears throat> two, I'm gonna ask kind of a three or four part question here. And you did answer already two of these and, and just see if you can and give a little bit more. Where do the ballots come from? Repeat that if you would. Who is the one paying them for this? You already alluded to why they do it at night, but say a word about that. And then the last thing will be, have any ch charges been filed or do you sense that any will be? Let me work those questions backward because um, it's difficult for us to get charges filed for the simple reason that 
the five areas that we cover in the film are all heavily democratic areas. In fact, this is why the fraud is easy to pull off. There's not like a Republican in sight. And so no one is, no, there are no eyes on these drop boxes. And so, uh, and not to mention the fact that the political establishment in these areas is also heavily democratic. It's the party of the cheaters. So when you have a secretary of state uh, that's from the same party that's being accused of cheating, they're not likely to go, wait a minute, I better look into this. Same with an attorney general. This is the case in Michigan. It's the case in Wisconsin, even in Pennsylvania. Now in Arizona, there is a Republican attorney general, Bernovich, and he actually has been moving on some voter fraud, not so much in Maricopa County, because that has a Democratic establishment. But in Yuma, uh, we have a we interview a mule from Yuma in the movie and the sheriff of Yuma, a guy named Wilmot, um, has 16 open cases of ballot trafficking that he's investigating. And there's one woman who was arrested before the movie came out, but she had an army of Democratic lawyers. They were all set to go to court and try to put up a defense. Uh, right after the movie came out, within days, she changed her plea from not guilty to guilty, and she will be sentenced very shortly. So there is some progress being made, but it's difficult because, as I say, it's all caught up in politics. In Georgia, there is a Republican establishment, the governor, Brian Kemp, the secretary of state, Raffensperger. Problem is, those two guys have been bitterly feuding with Trump. Uh, and they were supposed to be kind of the sheriff in Georgia. So think how difficult it is for them to admit, hey, I'm the sheriff, and somebody robbed the whole town right under my nose. I didn't even know what was happening until now. So there's a lot of pride. There's a lot of politics. Uh, and so all of this, I think, is playing into the um, either the presence or the absence of um, investigative progress on this. Where do they get the ballots? Uh, there is no legal way for uh, left-wing organizations embedded in these inner cities to get a hold of hundreds of thousands of ballots. There's just no way to do that. For that to happen, you need to imagine a scenario where hundreds of thousands of people, legal voters, say, I'm too busy or I'm too lazy to go to the post office and drop my ballot off or to city hall or to a drop box. I'm going to go to a left-wing organization, give them my ballot so they can hire mules in the middle of the night. I mean, this is so ridiculous that no one has even suggested it. It's too preposterous. So these are fraudulent ballots, and it turns out there are about 10 different ways to get them. One very common place where fraudsters have gotten ballots is from homeless shelters, because homeless people always feel obligated. They're obligated when they get a meal. And so it's very easy to get a hold of, they don't even care to vote, so they don't care one way or the other. So if you simply say, sign here, they're happy to sign and have somebody else vote their ballot. Similarly, there are nursing homes. Uh, a retired judge named Gableman in Wisconsin showed that there are 90,000 retirement uh, residents in the state of Wisconsin, some of whom are completely comatose. They don't even know their names. They barely say a few words every day. Yet they voted in the 2020 election. How is this even possible? Well, somebody either got them to scrawl their signature requested a ballot, voted in their name. And so all of these shenanigans are going on. Now, again, they've been going on for a long time. Um, but an absentee ballot fraud is known to be the most common form of fraud uh, in elections in any country. But those absentee ballots used to be three, four, 5% of the whole election. And then in 2020, they became a big part of the election. So that's what was new. That's what enabled the fraud to reach a completely new level.
and who's paying for it. You already alluded to why they go at night. I don't know if you want to say any more on that one, but then who's funding? This is, this is paying a lot of people. You, you, you tracked only just 2000 and I got the impression from the movie, there's a lot more. Right. So, I mean, I'm convinced that if you were to do exactly what True the Vote did in um, Florida, you'd get a whole bunch of mules. Uh, in Ohio, a whole bunch of mules. North Carolina, Nevada. I mean, if you're a cheater, why would you only cheat in those five states? It may be in retrospect that those were the five key states, but you would try to win all the states where the election is pretty close. Uh, and so I expect that there was cheating in another five to 10 states. Um, and I think if True the Vote had the resources and bought the geo tracking, they would discover that to be true. Um, now, um, your question was, oh, yes, where's the money coming from? Well, the answer is there is a huge river of money that goes from left wing billionaires, some of the tech moguls uh, and some of the huge foundations. These are things, places like the Rockefeller Foundation, the Carnegie Foundation, giant foundations pour tens of millions of dollars into these nonprofits. Now, their stated reason for doing it is, quote, get out the vote. And but my point is that what these left wing nonprofits do is they do get out the vote, but they also get out the mules. And so what you have is you've got this flow of money and we are able to track it in the movie. Uh, and I'm, I'm not even sure that the donors know about the mules. I mean, what's interesting about the left is they operate not in conspiracy, but in coordination. One group puts in the money. Another group files lawsuits so there's not careful signature checking. A third group fights against voter ID. And it seems like they're all working separately, but toward the same end. Mark Zuckerberg is paying for the drop boxes. Now, again, did he know about the mules? I don't know. But I will say this, if it wasn't for those drop boxes, where would the mules go? They'd have no place to go to. It's much more risky to go put the ballots in a post office box. First of all, a lot of post office boxes have surveillance. So the, the whole operation relies on a lot of actors, some people putting money, some people doing the legal work. Um, and by the way, one further thing that's worth saying, maybe in closing, is this. These nonprofits are strictly forbidden by law from engaging in partisan electioneering. They can generically exhort people to go vote, be a citizen, go vote but they cannot collect and harvest votes on behalf of one political party to put one candidate or one party over the top. This is strictly against IRS rules. And in fact, quite frankly, as someone who runs a church, you know that these rules are very strict as they apply to nonprofits. Nonprofits cannot engage in explicit electioneering. That's what these activist groups are doing. And so there's a double illegality. There's the illegality of the mules on the one hand, and the illegality of the nonprofits engaging in unauthorized electioneering on the other. When there is a, a, a violation of a law, I presume a private citizen cannot file charges. It has to come from an official, like an attorney general or a district attorney or that kind of position. Yes, although it, it can come also from local sheriffs. And one of the things True the Vote is doing <coughs> is working with some of the sheriff's associations because. A sheriff has the power in his jurisdiction to go arrest mules uh, and investigate fraud. And so there are a lot of people in authority who can chase this down. Um, you know, the Republican legislature of um, uh, Pennsylvania can order an investigation. Um, there's unlikely to be an investigation coming out of Merrick Garland. But if Republicans take the House and the Senate, 
They can most certainly have hearings on 2,000 mules, uh, and they, can, they will have subpoena power. They can do all kinds of stuff. So this is not going anywhere. It, this is not something that's going to go away anytime soon. There are lots of avenues of inquiry, and even though there are a lot of obstacles, as I say, even many Republicans are very nervous about this topic. They want this to go away. They don't want to look back. Some of them are kind of secretly happy that Trump lost. Uh, and so to them, it's, they want to sort of move on is kind of the phrase I hear a lot. Um, uh, so that's why there's a lot of obstacles in getting someone to just take an honest look at what happened in 2020. But my message to those Republicans, listen, you want to move on. But the best way to move on is to have an honest reckoning about 2020. You know, it's kind of like if Lance Armstrong cheated and he won the Tour de France seven times, um, you can't just say, let's fix the Tour de France. Let's get it right the next time. The first thing you have to say is, wait a minute, let's look at what already happened. First of all, is it fair for him to keep his medals if they were obtained through cheating? Um, no, we don't want him to have the fruits of the cheating. So let's take away the medals and then let's fix it the next time. So this is the kind of honest accounting that we're looking for. I'm confident or at least hopeful that it will happen, but we'll have to see. You have been very gracious with your time. This is very thorough. I, I want Rosemary to pray for you, then we're going to release you. I just remind all listeners uh, that what we're pursuing here, there's a reason why I'm emphasizing that I sound a little bit like a broken record, what we're pursuing here. Our concern is not partisanship. Our concern is ethics and morals and values, godly biblical values. It's called truth and honesty and, and virtue. This is what we long for in our nation. And without that, a so-called democracy or constitutional republic cannot function. So Dinesh, uh, my hat's off to you for the remarkable, it, it, was, it was stunning to me as I watched it, how creatively you put together what could have been an incredibly boring topic, but when I began to watch it within, I, I, I have a personality that doesn't like to sit and watch very long, and so I thought, I'm going to be done with this three or four minutes, I'll just see what it's about. I got hooked. It was late at night. I got hooked, and I could not stop. It was so compelling. It was a whole new slant on the whole issue. I thought I'd kind of exhausted all the possibilities on the 2020 election, but when, when I saw that, what you portrayed, it, it, uh, it held my attention. It was stunning, and it, it deeply grieved me for my nation morally. It just grieved me for my nation morally. We could be this far gone. This doesn't sound like America. This sounds like that country or that country. It doesn't sound like the nation that we've had that has a moral foundation to it. I'm going to ask my wife to pray blessings on you and protection around you and what you're doing then we're going to let you let you go my friend rosemary yes so almighty father we are so grateful that you have raised up an advocate a defender of truth and righteousness one after your own heart who is inspiring others to to understand to comprehend to have discernment to have wisdom and knowledge uh, of you and the truth so, Father, I thank you, Father. Your word says that you are a mighty defender. You are perfect and just in all your ways. You, God, is, are faithful and true, and what you do is right and fair. And, Father, we thank you that this mantle, this anointing is on Dinesh D'Souza, and he has been given uh, to this nation as a gift, as a, uh, um, 
a man, a leader in righteousness at this hour, because you, Father, are fighting on behalf of this nation. We thank you for your divine protection around him. We call upon the Lord God of heaven's armies to release his mighty angelic host to, concerning all that um, concerns Dinesh, his family, his finances, his health, his schedule, every aspect, Lord. We thank you that there is a mighty shield of righteousness covering his entire household, and we give you praise and glory. May he continue, Father, to walk in your ways and be a revealer of truths and uncovering the dark secrets of the enemy's strategies, Father, that our nation can be set free and that multitudes would come and to repent. And I repent now as an American citizen for the sin of my nation. And I ask forgiveness and I ask you, God, to return us back to you and bring justice over this situation. Thank you for the evidence that brings conviction upon us all. In Jesus' name, amen. Dinesh, we're here in Washington, D.C. right now. I spoke today at the Washington Times at a conference, very open, the public was invited, on big tech and censorship. I was one of about 12 speakers, uh, went all morning and part of the afternoon, including some representatives from big tech, in which this suppression of truth, uh, this context of the rise of totalitarian authoritarianism, this global in its scope, big tech is a part of that whole rise, the crushing of conscience, the crushing of individual thought, the crushing of speech that is happening. And at one point, and I know the big tech people who were present did not appreciate this, but it is a part, is a similar to the spirit of the Antichrist that is crushing. You can't buy, you can't sell, you can't do anything. We will oppress you if you think differently. And that's what we face. I pray protection over you in this arena, supernatural protection we speak over you in this arena, given the dynamic of our culture right now. Thank you so much for giving us this much time. We pray the blessing of the Lord upon you. Thank you, Dinesh, as you go. Thank you both, and thank you very much. I've been very happy to be part of all this, and I wish you all the best. Blessings Bye -bye. on you. Bye. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please read the show notes for additional details if you would like a copy of the book or resources mentioned. Remember that WellVersed is a 501c3 tax-deductible nonprofit organization. We rely on your support and partnership. Thank you for listening to the WellVersed podcast. For more information, please go to www.wellversedworld.org.